Well, welcome. It's fun to have the choir. We don't get them a time or two a year. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for those who are in the choir that uh, come and rehearse and lead us, and I love the energy that they bring. I want to start, uh, before we dive into this, um, by reading just a short text with regards to this thing of the resurrection. This is in John chapter 20, and we're not going to put it on the screen. I just ask you to listen. John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. We've talked about that before, a little race going on there. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside, and he saw and believed, and they still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Well, this morning, untold numbers of people all around the planet are gathering for the purpose of celebrating. Uh, Celebrating an event that they believe with all their hearts really did happen. Uh, An event that none of them had ever seen before, right? That's kind of a given. Uh, Namely, this thing of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's kind of unbelievable, really. Uh, It's not normal for someone to die and then come back from the dead. Would you agree? Most of us here have not seen that happen. Am I right? Yeah, nor is it normal for sane, educated, thinking people to actually believe something so unbelievable. Would you agree? Yeah. So why do so many folks actually believe that Jesus of Nazareth, a traveling Jewish rabbi who lived in the first century, died, but then, unlike anybody else, came back from the dead? That's the question I want to talk about this morning and and kind of interact with uh, with you. Before we go there, though, I just want to say welcome to our visitors. How cool is it? We're glad to have you here. One of the things I love about Easter is the fact that we have so many visitors. Um, They show up and and, uh, just to kind of let you know, we're actually here every week. We'd love to have you join us. Um, Your friends, your family, your neighbors, your people who are maybe curious this morning. And it really is awesome to have you with us. Uh, We just love that you would come and visit Deer Creek. I have to imagine that there are some here Uh, Maybe, in fact, even many of you who, if you stop to think about it, might be a little skeptical about this thing of a guy coming back from the dead. And I certainly do get that. And so as not to waste your time this morning, I'd like to share with you some reasons why I think you should seriously, seriously consider committing your life to following Jesus Christ and believing that the unbelievable actually happened. This thing of the resurrection, this thing that Christians everywhere are celebrating. I'd even like to suggest that believing in Jesus' resurrection is the only thing that actually makes any sense if you look at and examine the facts. Some of us here have done that. Uh, I get to do that every year because I talk about this every year and have been doing that for a long time. But when you look at the evidence, I think that actually demands a conclusion, a verdict that Jesus did die. He's a real guy. He did die. But unlike so many others, he actually came back from the dead as predicted. Uh, 
And then he, uh, after coming back from the, uh, the dead, he uh, met with and, and interacted with many individuals. Once uh, Jesus said to his disciples, this was before he died, he made this statement. He said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. He actually spoke about and predicted this thing of his death. It was statements like that at that time that that made no sense whatsoever to his followers. His followers were not putting these pieces together. Uh, But after his death and after his resurrection, they became convinced that Jesus actually was God. And so they didn't just believe in him. They actually worshiped Jesus. And they dedicated themselves to following him. And now the truth be told, if Jesus died and did not come back from the dead, then everybody gathering in different parts of the world, whether it's in homes or storefronts or huts or buildings like this or great cathedrals all all around the world, all of these people gathering this morning are just wasting, absolutely wasting their time. Uh, Because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, uh, maybe he was a good guy, maybe he was a great teacher, maybe even a miracle worker, but you'd have to say, so what? So what? If he's dead, well, then most of what he taught and most of what he claimed and most of the hope that he offered died with him. Uh, And that's how important and significant this thing of the resurrection of Jesus really is. In fact, the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' passionate followers, wrote these words. He said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. He understood the significance of this event. So let me, if I can, try and convince you, if you're not already convinced, why you should join me and so many others in believing that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the living son of God. He did die on a cross, but he came back from the dead. The facts are kind of interesting, really. Jesus' early disciples claimed that uh, they had seen Jesus resurrected. These are ordinary people like many of us here, just ordinary people, but they made this claim. They claimed to have touched him and talked with him and eaten with him and prayed with him and studied with him and hiked with him all after he had come back from the dead. So he's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. They were convinced that he was a man back from the dead. And they were either right or they were wrong. Uh, They were either uh, discerning the true situation or they were deceived about the true situation. They were either sincere or they were lying. There aren't many other options, actually. One of the things you need to understand about Christianity is it's kind of joined at the hip with Jewish history. Just to kind of give this whole conversation a little context, now, this faith called Christianity is actually a fulfillment of a long series of promises made by God to the Jewish people dating back over 4,000 years. And about 2,000 years ago, there was this little country called Israel, and uh, there were people there in that country at that time kind of chafing under the rule of the Roman government. And a sizable number of Jewish people were waiting for someone to come who would be a a spiritual leader and a political liberator. That's what they were looking and longing for. And they called this person the Messiah, which literally just means the anointed one, the one specially anointed by God. And what they did not understand at the time was that the Messiah's work would be about far more than just liberating them from Rome. 
His intentions were to liberate them from bigger enemies than Rome. He came to liberate them from sin and from death. That's what Jesus meant when he said, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He wanted to set them free from the oppression of living without God. That's what spiritual lostness is. It's living a life without God in that life. And he wanted to bring God's blessing to God's people. And to do that meant dealing with the problem of sin because sin is something that separates us from God. It's that brokenness that is in every single one of us. It's that brokenness that's in the world. Now, in that day, there were a lot of people in that part of the world leading freedom movements. And some were thought to be Messiah. Some even made the claim that they were the Messiah. There's a Harvard professor by the name of Harvey Cox. And Harvey Cox says that there were at least six such Messiah candidates within a hundred year period of Jesus when he was on earth. And these Messiah figures usually called people to some form of spiritual renewal. Uh, They called people to believe that the kingdom of God had come and was going to come through what they were going to accomplish. And they also often led political revolts. And as you can imagine, people would get pretty excited about this uh, and very hopeful. But the problem was every one of these wannabe messiahs ended up dead. That was the problem. That was a big deal. Every one of them were either killed by the Romans or by some rival faction. And that always meant one thing, that the Messiah's movement was over. Uh, The so-called movement leader or Messiah wasn't the Messiah. And this happened a number of times around this period. The movement leader or the Messiah died, and so the followers, although of course they missed him, Uh, They appreciated him. They had been inspired by him. Uh, They didn't follow him anymore. The movement was over uh, because the one who had led the movement was now dead. The Messiah was dead. And it's kind of into the middle of that kind of a context that Jesus shows up. And uh, Jesus was deliberately not a political figure. Jesus was deliberately uh, not leading a group of militant soldiers Jesus came as a Jewish rabbi. Surprise. And his followers thought that Jesus was unique. Uh, Jesus said one time that the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. What Jesus was saying was the kingdom of God is near because I am here. He says the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And then he went about telling them all kinds of good news. Namely that God loved them and God was interested in having a relationship to them. Now, others too had talked about the kingdom. This was not a new message. But Jesus, when he would talk about the kingdom, he talked about it differently. He made it seem like men and women and Gentiles and Jews and rich and poor and powerful and weak were all in the same boat. Nobody had special seats in the kingdom. Everybody was a sinner in need of saving. They all desperately needed God. Their own righteousness, their their own religious accomplishments and religious good was not good enough. They needed a savior, Jesus taught. And they needed God to save them. And, And this made some of the religious rulers really angry. Some, you would never say this in a church, but it pissed them off is what that did. Uh, They didn't believe they needed God to save them. Uh, They believed their goodness was good enough. Uh, There were other odd things about Jesus in his life and in his ministry. 
Uh, for the strangest thing, Jesus was very inclusive. He had women involved in his ministry, women who followed him around and who served, women who would listen to his teaching, women who would share that teaching with others. Uh, he had Gentiles involved in his ministry. He had Romans, Roman soldiers involved in his ministry. He had Samaritans for crying out loud, the worst of the worst people in that day involved in his ministry. And then too, there were the miracles those rumors about the miracles. Actually, they were more than rumors. So many people had seen Jesus perform miracles. They were simply uh, too many examples of his miracle working power for that power to be denied. Jesus healed the blind, the lame, the sick, the mute. He even raised the dead. Nobody does that. Anybody here seen anyone raise someone from the dead? So what I'm trying to do right now. You see, nobody taught the way that Jesus taught either. I mean, he had a certain confidence and a certain authority. Uh, for example, one time he was debating with the religious leaders. And I want you to, we're going to put some of this on the screen. I want you to look at some of the things he said. Nobody talks this way. He said, you are from below, speaking to these religious rulers. You are from below. I am from above, he says. You are of this world. I am not of this world. A moment later, he said, when you have lifted up the son of man. Now, they didn't know what he was talking about, but he was referring to the crucifixion. Then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. A moment later, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you Free. That's a remarkable claim to make about your teaching. Again, a moment later, he says, as it is, you are determined to kill me. He knew this ahead of time. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. He claims that his message has come to him from the Father. And then lastly, he says, if God were your father, because that was the claim they were making. They were saying, God is not your father. God is our father. That's what they were saying to Jesus. And Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. <laughs> wow. What do you do with someone who makes those kinds of statements? What do you do with someone who who has claims like that and says them with such authority. Well, you can imagine Jesus' followers got their hopes way, way up. He's the one. We're pretty sure he's the one. And then the day comes, the day of the crucifixion. And it's as if Jesus was expecting this the whole time. On the night before, uh, while eating the Passover meal, Jesus says to his disciples that are gathered around the table, he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knew what was coming. He knew suffering was on its way. And he told his followers to get ready. He told them that they would deny him. They would scatter. They would abandon him. And all this happened exactly as he predicted. But when he was arrested and tried and convicted and crucified, it was absolutely devastating to his followers. Even though Jesus had predicted it, to them, it meant he is not the Messiah. Jesus is not the one. That's what they thought. 
The movement was over and they feared for their lives. And in fact, if you read the text, you'll read the stories for it. You'll find them hiding. That's what they were doing. They were hiding. They were scared to death for their own skins. But then for some reason, inexplicably, in the space of just a couple of days, these same people regather, recommit, some leave their occupations for good. Some sell all of their possessions. Some stand before the religious authorities and boldly proclaim Jesus' resurrection. And they devote themselves to spreading the message of the resurrection. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one. He died on the cross to pay for sin so that we could live. He was buried in a tomb. We put him there. And on the third day, he came back to life. A simple message but an unbelievable message. And they went around everywhere telling everybody who would listen, we saw him, we heard him, we ate with him, we touched him, we know he's alive, he's back, he's the Messiah. That was the message. Some years uh, after this, the apostle Paul, who had become a follower uh, of Jesus, wrote these words. He said, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That according to the scriptures part is just saying, as predicted. As predicted. As predicted, you see. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And, and that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. Do you know why that's important? The James that Paul writes about here, that's Jesus' brother. He grew up with Jesus. How hard would it be for you to convince your brother that you are the son of God come back from the dead? Is that going to fly for you? Is your brother going to buy that? I doubt it. And it wasn't just his brother. It was his mother. It was the rest of his family, if tradition is true. Absolutely incredible. But he goes on to say, and then he appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. He appears to Paul. And that changed Paul's life forever. If you know anything about Paul's life, Paul had been a persecutor of Christians. He was on a mission, in fact, to stop this Jesus movement once and for all. But Paul claims that Jesus came and visited him while he was on his way to Damascus to find and to persecute Christians. And suddenly, Paul becomes a follower of Jesus instead of a persecutor of Jesus. And he dedicates his entire life to following Jesus and telling others about him. And Jesus' followers would do this, same thing. They would tell everybody who listens in spite of the risks or the hardship or the persecutions. Uh, and uh, the question, of course, is why? Why did they do this? That's the big question. And honestly, there is only one explanation that makes any sense, regardless of whether you believe or I believe in the resurrection or not. They did believe it. They believed it so strongly it was a life and death conviction to them. They believed that Jesus had come back from the dead. They believed that Jesus loved them and had died for them. They believed this so deeply, it changed their lives so dramatically, they wanted others to know. They wanted others to discover what they had discovered. Even if that meant their persecution and their death, and I'm telling you, die they did by the thousands for the things they believed. They said the tomb is empty. And many have argued and still do that they were wrong. 
I mean, for example, some people have argued that the, the tomb uh, was not really empty at all, never empty, that it was just a mistake of location. And the argument was made that the women went to the wrong tomb. A prominent advocate of this position is a guy named Kirsoff Lake about 100 years ago wrote a book about this, very elaborate scheme as he describes it. And, and uh, what he said is the women got mixed up and went to the wrong tomb, and that's what started this whole crazy thing. I think that's not likely. Which gender is it that when lost has too much pride to ask for directions? <laughs> Seems like you might know. It's not women. <laughs> women ask. Now, if there had been a man in that group leading that group, this might be a plausible theory. But I don't think so. A man would say, don't worry, don't worry. We can find it. It's around here somewhere. somewhere. We're just going to keep looking until we find it, right? Not women. It's not their nature. And, and more seriously, you know, the cemetery where Jesus was was not like Forest Lawn or, you know, Arlington National Cemetery, cemetery uh, where Jesus could have been buried in tombs one after another where there were thousands of them. They all looked exactly the same. That's not the situation here. Not at all. Uh, Jesus was buried in a well-known private burial chamber, burial cave. It belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, who could identify it very easily. It was distinct, easily identifiable. If there was any actual controversy back in that day, somebody would have or could have very easily just gone to the correct gravesite, gotten Joseph of Arimathea and said, where's the, where's the tomb? And go there and go, see, see, there's the body. Mystery over. Now, some people have argued that on the cross, Jesus uh, didn't actually die. Uh, that he temporarily lost consciousness, that he revived in the cool air of the cave. And this is sometimes referred to as the swoon theory. You might have heard this. One problem with this theory is that Roman soldiers were pretty good at identifying death. They really were. Uh, if a prisoner were to be executed, and if that prisoner somehow escaped, guess who would be executed in that prisoner's stead? It was the soldiers. And so Roman soldiers uh, in charge of an execution were pretty good, had a rather high level of motivation to make sure their charge, this prisoner, was in fact dead before they took him off a cross. Now beyond that too, assume for a moment that the swoon theory is true. Jesus really did just kind of swoon and then they laid him in the tomb, right? And he revived in the coolness of the tomb. That certainly raises a few questions because Jesus, as we know, before he was crucified was what? He was beaten. He was beaten so badly, he could not, in fact, even carry the, the cross bar to the place of crucifixion. We know that he was deprived of sleep. We know that uh, it was Simon of Cyrene who was given the cross to carry for Jesus. Then he hung on the cross for hours, had a sword pierced through his side, had nails, of course, driven into his hands and his feet. His body was then wrapped tightly in linens. And in John 19, we're told that 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes was put into that mixture uh, with those linens that were placed upon him. And he's laid in a tomb on Friday, no food, no water until Sunday morning. So you'd have to imagine that somehow he survives. Sunday morning, he manages to unwrap himself, gets up feeling pretty good. Good enough to roll that large stone away. Good enough to have a couple of conversations with the ladies and convince them somehow I'm back from the dead, right? Maybe the biggest difficulty with that theory is that 
a swooned, beaten, bloodied, and bandaged Jesus would not have inspired the belief that he had conquered death. He might have been able to inspire some anger or some pity, maybe some sadness. He never could have inspired anything like the courageous resurrection faith that we see in his followers. The swoon theory just doesn't really hold up well under scrutiny. Uh, some people have argued that the disciples stole the body. How many have heard this theory? That the disciples came and took the body out of the tomb. And then they made up the resurrection story. Literally made up what we would identify today as Christianity and its theology and so. There's a book called The Passover Plot that was written along these lines back in 1965 by a guy named Hugh Shornfield who actually stole the premise from a guy who wrote in the 1700s called uh, Ramirez. And uh, again, the idea that the disciples came, took the body. One difficulty with this theory is trying to figure out why. Why would they steal the body? Remember, the last thing Jesus discipled, uh, the last thing they anticipated was Jesus' death. They did not see this coming in spite of the fact that he predicted it. Now, no one was looking for it. They looked for victory, victory over our enemies. They looked for the overthrow of the Romans. They looked for the coming of God's kingdom. Death was not a part of the plan as they understood it. Remember, Peter even tried to dissuade Jesus from going to Jerusalem. He said, this is a bad plan, Jesus. Let's not do this. Another serious difficulty with the stolen body theory is the identity of the witnesses to the empty tomb. If you're going to actually make the whole thing up, then how are you going to tell the story so that it's the most believable? You know, the first witnesses to the empty tomb were who? Women. All four gospels tell us this. Now, what's so remarkable about that and what doesn't really strike us today but would strike anybody reading the gospel accounts in the ancient world is that women were not considered credible witnesses. Many of you have heard this before. Women were not allowed to testify in a Jewish court of law. Their testimony would not be considered valid. So let's say that the disciples did huddle together and did decide to steal the body and make up the whole resurrection story. Uh, and then they want to convince people that it's true. Who should they claim were the first witnesses to the resurrection? Yeah, not women. Maybe a group of rabbis, a group of priests, some respected leaders, but not women. That's the last thing in the world they would make up because women couldn't even credibly in that day testify. And yet all four gospels say it was first women to whom Jesus appeared and spoke and interacted. Some people have argued against the, you with me? Okay, I'm almost done. Not really, I lied, but anyway. Some people have argued against the resurrection in a different way. They have said it is better to treat the resurrection as a kind of a spiritual metaphor. This is actually pretty popular today with people in terms of their understanding what it is Christians are doing at this time of the year. That after the crucifixion, it was Jesus' teachings that came alive for his followers, that lived on in their hearts. And as a matter of history, this explanation simply doesn't work to explain what happened in the lives of Jesus' followers. Let me explain why. If your guy died in that day, he was not the Messiah. You could still be inspired by his life or by his teachings. You could love his memory. You could believe that his spirit had gone to be with God in heaven. But as far as being Messiah, sorry, no way, he's dead. And so you go home and you look for a new Messiah. The last thing you would do is make up a story that he had come back from the dead and come back to life 
and then literally go give your life to defend a story that you know is not true. People will die for their beliefs, that's true. People will even die for mistaken beliefs, that also is true. Nobody dies for what they know to be a lie, or in this case, a metaphor. No, not by the thousands, no. Sometimes uh, in our day, people think too, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that whole resurrection story thing, 2,000 years ago, long time ago. And you know, those people back then, pre-scientific people, you know what I'm talking about? And uh, they were not well-educated like we are. It was easy for them back then to say anything, believe anything, pretty gullible, you know, for them to swallow something like this is not that surprising. Let, let me just say, you know, time out for a second. Saying that Jesus rose from the dead was just as controversial 2,000 years ago as it is today. Just as controversial. And let's not be so arrogant. We are not the first generation of human beings to observe that dead people tend to stay dead. That's not a new discovery right there. People have known this for a long time, and that is why death is the great enemy of the human race. Guess what? We do not have a fix for it. They didn't have one back then. We don't have one today in spite of what we know. The fact that dead people tend to stay dead is also precisely why this claim was so hugely controversial back then in the first century and just as much so today. It's also why it turned the disciples utterly and completely upside down when it actually happened. The resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity. Without that message, regardless whether you believe it's true, without that message, the church does not exist today. People do not gather like this today. Paul was right. If Christ has not been raised from the grave, your faith is futile. And we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, Christians look at our world and Christians realize that things are not right. Life is not supposed to be this way. Injustice, poverty, cruelty, broken relationships, greed, hatred, self-centeredness, this stuff is not right. It is not good. And what is more, I am not right. I am broken. And so are you. Christians believe that the point of Jesus' resurrection was that God was now going to set things right. He started by conquering death, and he means to eventually fix everything that's broken, make it all new and all fresh. God had been promising his people for several thousand years that one day this messed up world would be set right by him. And now... Now that Jesus came and lived and died and rose from the grave, it has started. He has overcome our ultimate enemy, sin and death, so that even though we die physically, we are risen spiritually and will live for all eternity. Jesus is going to restore love and mercy and righteousness and goodness. Jesus' kingdom has come. Nobody thought it was going to start like this. No one understood or expected this to be the plan. Nobody saw that the plan was that the Messiah must die. But it's working. 
Millions of people. Who knows how many today, in fact. I, I, it just thousands and thousands will decide to follow Jesus. Maybe even you will. And if you do, then Jesus and his spirit, get this, comes alive in you. You become a new creature with new power, with new eyes to see and ears to hear what God is doing and what God is saying. God's kingdom has come, you see, and is coming. The resurrection proves it. And we get to be a part of it. Absolutely nothing can stop it. Not even your or my unbelief can't stop it. Not even death itself. That conviction is what turned a cowering band of disappointed followers into a community that would defy all social divisions and conventions. There would be men and women. There would be Jews and Gentiles. There would be black and white and red and orange and green and rich and poor and noble and ignoble. People all deciding he is risen. Yeah, that was pathetic, by the way. But anyway. <laughs> so he is risen. <laughs> Nobody can say we don't get it right the second time, right? <laughs> Jesus' community would love and serve not just each other, but people who they hardly knew. And they rejoiced in persecution. They would sing hymns in the face of prison and death. And along the way, they would reshape every culture with whom they came into contact. All because the tomb was empty. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I'll tell you what, if you want some current evidence for Jesus' resurrection, try this. People still today encounter him. Every century, every continent, every culture, rich and poor, young and old, well-educated, illiterate, beaten, broken, arrogant, afraid, people who are addicted and alone and hopeless and bitter, people right here in this room who have found power to change, hope to encourage, and strength to forgive people in the most difficult of situations, all because Jesus is alive. I'm one of those people. I'm here to tell you. And I would ask you, how about you? Why don't you join us if you haven't already? It is very important to ask questions. It's very important to seek answers. It's very important to raise your doubts. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. God is all about answering questions. In fact, I would invite you to join us starting next week. We're going to begin a series called The Foolishness of Faith. And we're just going to examine some stuff like faith in science and the problem of certainty and the issue of faith in general and the problem of evil and the reliability of the Bible. That's just next Sunday. <laughs> it's going to be a heck of a series, okay? <laughs> but maybe that should be a part of your process right now, just getting answers to some of your questions. But come join us. We would be so incredibly honored. But I want to say this too. Sometimes people kind of get stuck there, just always asking questions, never accepting answers. And sometimes they can use that process as a pretext to avoid the commitment issue. Because there is something inside them that doesn't want to surrender. And following Jesus is about surrender. It is about commitment. 
But consider this, you will commit your life to something. You will get meaning somewhere. Success, popularity, power, intellectual achievement, money, looks, religion, whatever. That's part of the human condition, friends. The question, of course, is whether any of those things are big enough to give your life the meaning that you were meant to have. And one of the great dilemmas of our time is, yeah, we've got great jobs, great health, great medicine, great homes, great cars. We have great technology. We have so much. But do we really have a reason to enjoy life, to live life to the fullest? That, understand, is why Jesus came. He said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And for some of you to discover just who Jesus really is, it is time to give the resurrected Jesus your love and your trust, your belief. Invite him into your life. And you can do that really simply. It's so simple. You can do that right now. Just tell God, God, I need you. I know I don't have all the answers and I still have some questions, but I recognize that I need your forgiveness and I understand that Jesus came and died on the cross for me. And that there he paid for my sin and then rose from the dead. And so I ask you to be my forgiver and my leader, my ruler, my deliverer, my friend from this day forward. I put my hope in you. I will follow you. A prayer like that does the job. And when you do that, it's resurrection time all over again. Untold numbers of people around this planet are going to pray that prayer or a prayer like it today. Spiritual resurrection happening in the hearts and the lives of people. What a great day to give your life to Jesus and get his life back in return. If you do that this morning, if you pray a prayer like that this morning, I so strongly encourage you, tell someone. Tell me, tell a friend, tell a family member, but tell someone. Declaring that you've made a decision like that is really very important. It's a way of putting a stake in the ground, saying from this day forward, it's different. I'm just wondering whether to preach the second half of this sermon. Okay, I won't. Instead, you know what we're going to do? We're going to sing together. And I really hope we can raise the roof off the building. This is what, one of the things we're going to sing. There's a reason why the curse of sin is broken. There's a reason why the darkness runs from light. There's a reason why we stand here now forgiven. Jesus is alive. Let's sing. This is something that just I'm going to do for you. <laughs> You'll wish you were dead. Yeah, if we do that. 